Welcome to this, the third series of our Ghost Lights podcast. This season, we'll be talking to some brilliant young changemakers who are challenging the system, asking questions of established leaders, and already making huge contributions in their bid to make the world a better place. It gives me great joy to welcome Shruti Vijayakumar to our episode of Ghost Lights. She has been recognized as a global shaper by the World Economic Forum, and she was a finalist for the Young New Zealander of the Year. Shruti has had a very varied but hugely impactful career, and we met a number of years ago at Oxford Side Business School, where she started her MBA and then later worked for the Skoll Center of Social Entrepreneurship. Welcome to our podcast, Shruti. Where do I find you? As you join this podcast, where in the world are you? Hi, Sam. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I am dialing in from the future for you from beautiful New Zealand down under in the city of Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, this uh, evening. Fantastic. Well, Shruti, I am so pleased that you could join me um, on this podcast because it's the first in a series that we're doing. And um, it's our third series of the podcast. And we are focusing on change makers really on people who have brought about change both in their own careers in their own worlds but also are exercising that in a much broader context so you are absolutely the perfect person to start the series i mean we met several years ago at oxford side business school and what struck me at that time was how aligned your values were with what you were doing in the world and I just remember getting goosebumps as you were telling the story of your own journey and thinking, gosh, you know, the absolute courage and strength of being able to make that shift is just, it just at that moment, I thought you really have put into practice what so many people would love to do, but never have the courage to do. And I wonder if you'd be prepared to maybe share just that small story again, because I think it really is powerful. And then, yeah, we can talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, thank you for the yeah the kind introduction, Sam. Yeah, I, I guess worth even prefacing to acknowledge, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have had a brilliant upbringing, very supportive parents, a really well-rounded education, both in terms of the system here in New Zealand, the UK, but also my own cultural upbringing through sort of Indian Vedantic spirituality and culture. So really acknowledge that a lot of the courage, the perspective, the values, come from many places and sources and also a lot of privilege. So I hold a lot of gratitude to sort of preface. But I think, yeah, if I recall, the story you're referring to was sort of a transition in my own career from management consulting to sort of this my own sort of entrepreneurial <laughs> rogue sort of career path, which is quite hard to define, but has been hugely fulfilling. And if I remember back to the time, I remember being a management consultant at this top tier firm. My parents were proud. Friends were kind of impressed that I was always flying around and staying at these fancy hotels. Not that they'd be impressed by that nowadays, <laughs> given the climate context and the broader awareness we have. But at the time, it was one of those things that was really perceived by society as successful and uh, the way to start your career and, you know, way to open doors and build skills to really yeah, make money and grow and kind of climb the ladder, so to speak. And yeah, a couple of years in, I remember really questioning why I was here and where this was leading and just observing that the longer I stayed here, the more insecure I became. My mental health suffered, physical health suffered, relationships suffered, 
whilst outside I had the shiny label that the world still said, oh, good on you. <laughs> so there yeah. was this uh, this tension between what I was experiencing inside me, the dissatisfaction, but also just the health consequences on so many levels compared to society's ideas of success, which already you could feel that incongruence. I could feel that incongruence. And I think that really provided a, yeah, that tension or conflict provided a grounds upon to question you know, what really does success mean to me? What is it that I'm here to do? What would, yeah, what does a meaningful life mean to me? And gave me the courage, I think, when leaving that firm to take a wild jump and move to my home country, India, to the horror of a lot of my family, uh, to join a tiny non-profit education startup that no one had heard of, um, that wasn't financially sustainable or viable, wasn't a big name or a brand but certainly was a place where I could serve the community and get to know my own land and be in tiny public schools and slum communities and, and just learn immense amounts while contributing. And so, yeah, I feel very grateful to have made that jump and also acknowledge that consulting start while challenging provided many useful skills and good perspective of just what the world is that we as change makers are trying to change and disrupt mm. and, and push and evolve. So. I think it played both a useful role in my journey, but also the tensions that I felt inside me that I think all of us feel in different ways when we're perhaps not living in alignment provided such a fertile ground to question, yeah, what really does matter to me and what's my place and purpose on this little blue dot? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a wonderful story and, I, and I'm just always curious and I, I somehow haven't asked you this before, but um, was there a moment when you when you shifted your perspective was there something that happened or was it an accumulation of sort of small tiny sort of incidents that you suddenly kind of woke up one day and thought gosh i need to make a change i mean do you remember that do you remember what yeah, the moment one of was the turning points <laughs> one of there was certainly a series but one of the turning points was working my first 24-hour work day okay. after a week of like 3 a.m's <laughs> And I, I mean, I acknowledge part of that's also me as a young grad, not knowing how to set boundaries and, you know, feeling the yeah. pressure of, you know, needing to say, you know, yes and, and follow through on what was asked of me and do that at a certain standard. Uh, but that was certainly a week of, you know, why am I, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes as kind of naive and passionate grads, you know, I think it can be hard to step back and question or push back on our, on our seniors and kind of supervisors. So that was one perhaps of, of many instances. I think part of it was also when I thought about the kind of trajectory um, I wanted in the firm, which was to then, you know, try and do social impact consulting or go overseas. A mentor of mine said, oh, you could do that anyway. Like you don't have to yeah. stay in the firm to go and do those things. And if you really want to have an impact, there might be better ways to do that than through this one path that, you know, society kind of expects you to follow through with. So I think having good mentors and over the years, I mean, now it's often a circle of friends that I can really rely on to call me out. It may not be the same things, but there's often times where I do need to, you know, be called out and be told, oh, you're working too hard or what about this? Or have you thought about this? Or actually, uh, why are you actually doing that? <laughs> so I, I think having good people around you to hold you honest um, and say the uncomfortable and honest things is, has been really valuable in my own journey. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I think that's really a lovely illustration, actually. And it's also really, in a sense, a metaphor what you're doing at the moment, which is kind of looking at a much bigger system, which is the economic system that we've all kind of accepted that this is how the world works. And in a sense, was laid down by Milton Friedman in his, you know, the role of the organization is to create shareholder value. 
And of course, what you're doing is you're challenging those notions. You're actually pushing against the edges and you're saying, hang on a second, this is actually not how the world needs to be designed. We can think about it in a completely different way. And I wonder, Shruti, if you could maybe share some of the work that you're doing in that space, because I know that this has been an ongoing passion for a number of years. And we, in fact, met on a project looking at the circular economy, which is, I suppose, one yeah. small way of, of disrupting this kind of conventional notion of the system. Yeah, certainly, Sam. And I might preface it with a bit of content and just feel free to jump in with your thoughts and questions as you like. You mentioned Milton Friedman and his kind of focus on, you know, the purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder returns, and that's the sole responsibility. What I find really interesting is if you begin to look back, I mean, Friedman, that was just not so a few decades ago, but if you yeah. look back, even over the last 500 years, we see a kind of belief system that we've adopted in most parts of the world, that's in most major economies, not all, um, that stemmed from certain parts of Western Europe. We see Newton, Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, Adam Adam Smith, you know, a number of kind of philosophers, economists, thinkers that kind of had this belief that humans are one separate from nature, separate from each other. Because we're separate, we exist to maximize self-interest. There's not enough resources to go around. Therefore, we must compete for scarce resources to maximize as much as we can to survive. Because of scarcity and separation, more for you is less for me and more for me is less for you. So it's this sort of kind of set of assumptions in, in Economics 101. We, we learn about um, homo economicus, the rational economic man that's driven yeah. by these rational self-interests to maximize as much as they can for themselves. And this core idea of, of separation from nature and kind of seeing nature almost as a mechanistic thing that we can reduce and make sense of has been amazing when it comes to science and understanding the world and has led to all kinds of technological developments. But that kind of way of seeing ourselves and see, seeing the world has permeated the entire economic system now such that we see success at an individual level, maximizing money at a firm level, profits at a societal level, GDP, which again is a measure of how much stuff we produce and consume. And at the same time, you know, I think the the conversation on GDP not being a good measure of success for economies is starting to happen. New Zealand here, we're talking about the well-being economy and Bhutan's got the gross national happiness index. There's a few kind of conversations done at economics, which we can dive more into. At the firm level, the idea of stakeholder kind of capitalism is gaining momentum. How do firms create value for all stakeholders? At an individual level, we see millennials that are kind of trying to put passion and purpose together and be able to support themselves financially while doing things they care about and contributing. But I think the underlying assumption that perhaps isn't talked about as much in the kind of external dialogue by the World Economic Forum or whatever kind of platforms you go to is this fundamental belief about who we are as humans. And I think we're still operating in this mode of separation and trying to tweak the system and go, yeah, can we still be competing but compete in a better way? And can we still be competing but do less harm as opposed to really regenerate and create true flourishing? And I think the shift that needs to happen at an internal level or kind of personal and systemic level that our work is really trying to serve is how do we challenge this idea of separation and come to appreciate the rich interconnectedness between all people and all life and all nature? And any biologist, any chemist, any physicist, any scientist will tell you the idea of separation is an illusion. This is all just matter and energy fields. In nature, everything is deeply interconnected. If anything is off balance, the whole ecosystem falls apart. You have a fish, one fish, and the thing can't eat it and it kind of the thing that it normally eats, you know, overpopulates. And so in nature, we find 
you know, such an appreciation of our interconnectedness and how we need to acknowledge that my actions affect yours, that your well-being is my well-being, that if you thrive, I thrive. And when we look at the world from a point not of separation, but from a point of interconnectedness, we see abundance, we see collective thriving, and that core, not just belief, but experience leads to a very different understanding of what success would mean, which is much more about collective thriving and flourishing. And this idea of interconnectedness rather than separation is very much found in many indigenous, if not all, I would say indigenous cultures, but also in wisdom traditions in all parts of the world. You know, the Māori here really speak about these notions of oneness, which lead to guardianship for the land, an idea of responsibility to care for nature and each other rather than rights over nature. But it's something I find in my Indian culture, you find it even when you go back into the West, you look at the Druids and how they connected so deeply with oak trees. You find it in the West, the East and indigenous traditions. And I think the revival of those other perspectives and ways of seeing the world and ways of being in the world, I think that shift needs to happen at a personal heart level if we really are going to make the shift to stakeholder capitalism and well-being economies. And just because we've got the intellectual theories, unless that personal shift happens in us, I don't think we can really shift the system because we're still, as Einstein says, trying to solve the problem from the same level of thinking that created it rather than really challenging the thinking of the consciousness. So long story short, that shift in internal consciousness is what we're trying to do through our work here, whether it be through leadership coaching or retreats or nature-based experiences connecting with Indigenous elders, um, looking at how we support people to really ask those fundamental questions. And one of my mentors often says our interconnectedness is like gravity. It's not <laughs> It's not a belief. You don't choose to be interconnected. It's a reality. It's just are we going to embrace that reality or kind of pretend it's not there and continue with this exploitative, extractive system based on this, this other view? Well, I, I mean, Shruti, it's as you were talking, I'm struck by the fact that you're sitting in Auckland, I'm sitting in London or just outside of London, and actually our podcast is being recorded from Johannesburg. And in South Africa, we have this wonderful concept of Ubuntu, which really mm. means I am because we are. And I think that, it, you know, that really sort of describes so vividly this idea you're talking about of interconnectivity and the fact that you know, every single person on the planet, every animal, every piece of nature is connected in one way or the other. And you mentioned uh, Bhutan uh, leading, you know, this sort of World Happiness Index, but actually the World Happiness Report's just come out this last week or a couple of weeks ago. And it shows that belonging is the singularly most important sort of uh, piece at work. When people feel like a sense of belonging, that is what creates a level of happiness. Mm. So I think, you know, what you're saying, we're at the edge of these ideas becoming increasingly well understood and really starting to see the significance of that playing itself out in a whole lot of areas. So thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds powerful. Mm. When you talk about individual consciousness, I'm really curious. I mean, how do you get people to step outside of the conventional thinking or, or the sort of thinking that they might have held on to for a long time, even though something niggles that this might not, there might be another way of doing something. I wonder if you had any sort of examples of, of that, of how mm. people could shift. Yeah, I think there are many, many factors that come together. I think one thing that's worth noting is in our work, we find people that are ready 
to challenge or let go are the people we like to work with most. Yes. If someone is too entrenched, I'm I don't I'm not going to spend time trying to convince them otherwise. That's fine. Like there's a role for them in the system as well. But those that are sort of curious and open and ready, it's a delight to work with them because yeah. there's a sincerity and a receptiveness to different ways. So I think one, there's a question of timing and stage and phase. Um, and I think yeah, for those that are a bit slower, I mean climate change and other disasters are probably going to snap a lot of us just i think just the collective um suffering we're seeing is making more people question so if not now i think very sh shortly more and more people are going to come to that place of going maybe this isn't working and maybe i need to think differently or we need to think differently i think one of the other things we find very useful is um taking people to contexts or places quite different from the norm where there's space to kind of be exposed to new ways so we've got one little venture here called emerge institute that does a lot of training for, for social entrepreneurs and teams of change makers to help them innovate in different ways, more aligned with this idea of interconnectedness. So we have a program called Spirit Labs, kind of our own innovation process. And the last one we did, we did on an island in an ocean reserve. And we went off to this beautiful uh, island, which has got many protected kind of nature reserves, many species of birds, amazing stars. You can't hear the city life. And there's something about being in this space i think often in nature can be so powerful but even not, if not in nature a place away from your home that kind of gives you space and freedom and even mental clarity to explore and, and think and feel and challenge kind of ways of being and i think the other kind of i mean there are many ingredients another is just safety and really ensuring the environment we create is very non-judgmental not there's no blame you're wrong this is wrong this is incorrect but really a safe and accepting and kind environment where people can feel, yeah, where our nervous systems can settle and be open to new ways. And mm. I think many of our organizations, we're stuck in this state of constantly being a bit stressed or pressured or worried about how people think of us or if we're performing. And I think just the cultures we've created in many organizations, even in our society at large with the many challenges we face, make it quite hard to even feel settled enough to then be able to step back. So there's a lot of kind of processes or you know we might run to support groups um to feel connected to each other connected to the land feel a sense of safety be in a place that's more conducive for that and in that environment begin to explore and maybe the final thought is i think with this work my belief is that immense wisdom resides in each one of us and i really try and ex look at it not as we're here to teach you or tell you how the world is or how it should be or how you should do do business but very much creating a space just to ask questions and help people come to their own insights and awarenesses and and, their, and discover their own wisdom. And even the person that might have been educated in, in completely one way and think, oh, I, I can't connect to Indigenous worldviews at all. It's amazing in the right space. How how that wisdom in all ways can arise from all of us and, and really, yeah, we can draw from different cultures powerfully. So I think, yeah, creating a space where people can access their own wisdom and feel really empowered by that and realize that rather than be told or taught. And I think it's really key in how we approach this work as well. Shrithian, you know, you talk about working with people who are in a way already open and in a, a sense enthusiastic on a level about this new way of thinking and being in the world. And I'm wondering, you know, there's a kind of fear I experience with very senior leaders of letting mm -hmm. go what's been done before but a nervousness that they have to change the whole system, that making any sort of significant shift requires 
a sort of wholesale move into something completely unknown. And I wonder, you know, how do you help people sort of see that there are small things that can actually have a really big accumulative impact rather than the sort of massive, important, sort of huge change, which is incredibly daunting for people who are already overstretched, Mm. exhausted, as you say, operating at this level of slight anxiety in a constrained system. Mm. I might think about this one, Sam. Mm. Maybe I won't overthink it and I'll just speak. Yes, (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think as you've kind of alluded to, Sam, like change needs to happen in every part of (laughs) most, again, I don't want to generalize every country and every system and every context, but for the large part, there's so much change that's required in so many ways. How we employ, who we employ, the diversity of our cultures, how we treat the environment, how we treat the elderly in our community, all kinds of discrimination. There's, There's no shortage of issues within business and beyond that needs addressing. So there's plenty of work to do. I think um, the best way I've often gained confidence is by starting somewhere and having the courage to just take one step. You know, it's a very classic um, proverb, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I think in taking one step and doing one small experiment that might feel safe and easy, maybe with a trusted client, maybe with a group of employees that you know really well, starting somewhere that feels safe and comfortable and being a little bit vulnerable, pushing to your edge, but not too far, um, can create such a feeling of momentum and confidence to then take the next step and the next step and the next step. And I think if we are to create change, I think as much as I envision the systems wide transformation, maybe in my lifetime, maybe it won't happen in this life and it may take decades longer, for that wide change, we still, if we try and do too much at once, it's going to overwhelm people and confuse people. And I don't think trying to do everything at once necessarily, at least in this climate, will work. Mm. So starting somewhere where it feels safe and easy, where people are listening, where people are open, that's where I find, you know, a lot of young talent really pushing and agitating for positive social change in business. So if you're a leader and you notice there's a lot of young employees that really are passionate about how our technology could serve underprivileged communities or how we could do more volunteering, how we could be more embedded in our community, how we could report in a more holistic way. How might I engage those young people that are already intrinsically motivated, that are excited and, and share some power and really invite them in and, and see what they want to do. And I think perhaps one of the thought that arises as well as sometimes as a senior leader, we follow this leadership paradigm where we think I've got to have the vision and the direction and people will follow my lead. And I think perhaps this time is calling for a different kind of leadership where we lead a bit more by letting go and by sharing power and by holding space for our teams and our stakeholders and our wider kind of community to, to drive us. So I guess a challenge would be for a business leader that does want to really be a part of this change, but maybe doesn't know how to start. Who are the people in your community that have ideas as to how they could start? I'm sure there are many. And, and how might you empower them, resource them and support them to actually be the change and lead the change, they might actually be better placed to do a lot of this than often our, our leaders, kind of leaders in the positions are as well. Well, uh, Shruti, I remember that you introduced me to the Hyman's and Tim's New Power book, which really mm. describes very strongly the, the, the power and the, um, the impact of, in a sense, a distributed and democratized way of, bringing ideas into organizations and into the world. 
I, I sort of love your idea of, you know, find one or two people who can, in a sense, buoy you up a little bit with their ideas and how you then take that further. And I think that is wise advice for senior leaders who often are very constrained by who they're speaking to as well. You know, they have a group of often their own peers and really don't step into other conversations that might be more generative and helpful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that would be, you know, that that would help also the sense of people really feeling a sense of belonging in organizations as well. Mm-hmm. Younger people who perhaps feel adrift and not part of where the organization is heading. I think that's very wise. Mm-hmm. Shruti, a very difficult question I'm going to ask you now, but I feel like you're up to answering it, is if you had a free hand and you could absolutely design an organization sort of from scratch, Mm. what would you have in it yeah that's a fun that's a really fun question I think that the first thing that often and and a lot of our eastern systems particularly the Vedantic system in India the intention is given as much if not more importance than the action the intention the why is given such significance and so the the first question the first thing I'd consider in designing an organization is why are we starting this not only in the sense of like a flashy purpose statement, but what's my personal intent and where is this coming from? Do I feel like I need a business to somehow feel validated by society? Am I doing this to chase external success? Do I really feel inspired to contribute because my heart breaks at any, like what's my personal intent behind starting this? And yeah, how pure can that be, you know? And I think if that initial intent is really one kind of on a slight tangent, Elizabeth Gilbert is a writer whose work on creativity I've been reading recently, and she talks about inspiration sort of finding us and flowing through us. And lots of writers and artists and musicians will talk about how the song just comes and they quickly write it down, or the poem just comes. And this idea, I think, also can apply to business. Like, what is it that wants to come through me? Otto Sharma, the leadership kind of professor from MIT, behind theory, you often talks about what's, how does the future want to emerge through you? And I think there's often, again, in the Māori culture, we've got this idea of Māori or how does the life force, the spirit, want to express through me? So I think the first question would be, yeah, what wants to come through me without me getting in the way with my desires and egos and fears and preferences? And can I really give life to that? And then kind of building on that, so what's the purpose of this organisation? Why does it exist and does it need to exist? What, how is it really going to create meaningful value leave the earth better than we found it, leave people's lives better than we found it. It could be as simple as I want to design beautiful chairs all the way to I want to solve hunger, whatever it is, no judgment. But how can this come from a place of a genuine desire to want to leave the other world, communities, people better than we found it? So that I think provides a really nice foundation of pure intention and a clear North Star. Then I think two of the most important kind of design principles are ownership and financing. Like, can we have an ownership model that's conducive to us fulfilling our purpose and receive money that enables it? And I think it's just so hard for publicly held companies that are operating in a system that requires quarterly returns to think long term and really think intergenerationally and think holistically. Yeah, maybe if you've got really enlightened shareholders, but it's generally the pressures are too hard. So that's where I think being owned by a trust, being employee owned, being community owned, there's a few different models that generally are more conducive to allowing you to honor your purpose. Even family-owned businesses tend to have more of a legacy and long-term thinking, like Mars that we've worked with. So I think, yeah, the ownership is so key and the quality of finance. Like other people are funding this 
or is the source of finance really aligned with the purpose and giving us the freedom to pursue our purpose? And I think of a company like Patagonia that I think has done a really brilliant job in terms of contributing holistically to the environment. You know, they've got many circular economy innovations. You can repair your clothes, give back to the community. They're doing a lot. And, and the founders really, it's privately held and he's had the freedom to really make decisions and be quite bold and and stay true to his purpose and, and the financing and ownership model, I think, is really key. And if that's not in place, you can have the best leadership, but that can really hold one back. The other things I'd really consider is one, how we connected to our stakeholders, our wider ecosystem, and really from the outset, building relationships. So in a New Zealand context, Māori, the indigenous people, are a key stakeholder. And often we have a very, you see a lot of businesses sort of consult them, but not really from the outset build meaningful relationships to the kind of true custodians of our land in some way. So depending on your context, who are the different stakeholders? Are there First Nations people on the land or the place that you want to engage from the very outset? What about the local community where you're actually establishing a physical presence if you have one? Who are the who are the wider stakeholders that you are going to engage with in your business and how can you get to know them, connect with them? really meaningfully build relationships that aren't transactional. Often in the context of engaging Māori, we talk about you want to start building the relationship before the work so that it's truly a relationship, not just a transaction. So that's something I keep in mind from the outset. And then I could go on about culture and decision-making and reporting and metrics, and but those are some initial thoughts, um, Sam. <laughs> well, I'm kind of delighted that you put in a bit of finance in there as well because I think it's a very underutilised lever actually for systemic change it seems sort of such a set frame you know um, and of course we know in the work that we do that um, specifically around the mutual PL, that actually you can have a very powerful change mm. because of how you leverage finance and especially taking in a longer term perspective yeah of course your examples of privately held companies they seem to have much more agency but mm. um you know of course unilever paul polman you know, refusing mm. to report back every quarter actually changed the game. And there was a boldness there that has carried through. Unfortunately, not that many companies have followed suit, but it's possible. So, no, that's a that's a lovely mix. And, and it would be a delight should you start a company. I think everyone would want to come and work for <laughs> and with you and your wonderful vision. Um, Shruti, I'm going to leave our podcast. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but I want to ask you one last question, if that's okay. Is what is a piece of wisdom that you've always held dear? One piece of wisdom that you would be happy to share with the listeners of this podcast who are embarking mm. themselves on this journey of transformation, really? Yeah. Oh, this, <laughs> there's so much good things out in the world. The first one that comes to mind I heard this at a leadership workshop through the spiritual community I'm part of maybe 10, 12 years ago in Melbourne. And it, and it was a facilitator who said, whenever you make decisions, what's the place you're coming from? And he said, is it a place of love or a place of fear? And it's a bit binary and a bit simplistic. And I think often in decisions, there's all kinds of mixed things going on. But I find that just a really useful anchor to come to check myself when I'm trying to decide whether to take on this work or not, or whether to leave this opportunity or whether to move countries, whatever the decision might be personally or professionally. Is this coming from that part of me that's peaceful, calm, open, um, joyous, uh, loving? Or is it is there some fear, some resistance, some worry, 
some insecurity. And I think that's often not a not a bad thing. It's again Elizabeth Gilbert who's got this lovely analogy where she says, fear is a really useful thing, but when you're driving the car, you want it in the backseat because it can warn you if, if there's something to be mindful of. Yeah, maybe I'm scared I'm not going to make money and I need to be practical. Yeah, that's useful, but you don't want fear in the driver's seat. You don't want fear choosing the music or choosing the snacks or and otherwise we'll never fulfill our potential and live this very limited life. So acknowledge the fear. It's useful. Examine it. But it's very easy out of default to let fear kind of unconsciously drive our lives and the decisions we make, which I think can really hold us back from doing the things that we really want to do and that, yeah, through which we can best contribute and, and also live really meaningful, contented lives as well. Well, that is a wonderful way of finishing this first podcast in our series um and you yeah you have left certainly the listeners and myself with so much to think about truthy and i'm going to add in all the references you mentioned at the end of this and just a huge appreciation for your time and just for sharing so openly and with such candor your own experience and your own journey you've been listening to ghost lights a podcast by Thompson Harrison. Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.